0: listener. It's Maria Hinojosa here.
1: And Julio Ricardo Varela.
0: We are continuing our series on the best of In the Thick.
2: Uh
1: And
0: today, as we continue to celebrate and uplift Black History Month in the country, Mm -hmm. we're throwing it back to one of our favorite episodes.
1: Yeah, this is one of my favorite episodes of all time, Maria. You and I talked with authors and historians dinah Ramy berry and callie nicole gross about their book a black women's history of the united states
0: and it really was such an incredible book yeah they look at the history of black women in america and their legacy of activism resistance and entrepreneurship there you go and we dropped this episode around the july 4th holiday in 2020 when the entire country was mobilized and taking to the streets to defend Black lives after the police murder of George Floyd. And I just love that we were going back to the roots of Black history in the United States while centering and highlighting the incredible women, yeah. Black women at the forefront.
1: It's such a great conversation, Maria. And the relevance of it yeah. is so important because it uplifts this history and these voices as we're seeing... These continued white supremacist attacks Mm -hmm. on black and brown communities happening and also our access to education. So use this episode to get a little bit of the education that might not be available in other parts of the country now. Let's just get to it. For the next installment of the best of in the thick, our series, you know, shows from the last seven years. Here's the next episode in the series, and it's from July 3rd, 2020.
0: Hey, welcome to In The Thick. This is a podcast about politics, race and culture from a POC perspective. I'm Maria Hinojosa. And I'm Julio Ricardo Varela. You know, a lot of people talk about patriotism on this kind of a holiday weekend. And so we are going to honor some of the OG patriots of this country. Oh, heck yes. You know who we're talking about, black women. So it's been just over a month of Black Lives Matter protests in the aftermath of the murder of George Floyd by police in Minneapolis. And it really has been black women and black LGBTQ folks on the front lines of these demonstrations in many ways. So we want to share with you an interview that we did a little bit ago about the history of the United States through the eyes of black women, wow. through the eyes of these American patriots. It's so good,
1: this interview. It's, uh, you know, we did it right before the quarantine and also before the this nationwide global uprising, to defend black lives but this interview like remains highly relevant to the current moment in this movement and we as a team and as co-hosts we really felt that there's no better time to ground ourselves with this rich history of resistance and social change so let's take a listen
0: have such a special show for you today. Joining us from yeah. Austin, Texas is Dinah Ramey Berry. She's professor of history and American history at the University of Texas at Austin, the birthplace of Latino USA. Hey, Dinah, welcome yes. to the show.
2: Thank you so much for having me. I'm happy to be here.
0: And joining us from Philadelphia is Callie Nicole Gross. She's a Martin Luther King Jr. professor of history at Rutgers University. Hello, Callie. Hello, thanks for having us. Dinah and Callie are really incredible women who have co authored a new book. It's called A Black Woman's History of the United States. Yes, Mm. this book is part of the Revisioning American History series by Beacon Press, and it's a beautiful and powerful book. Thank you so much to the both of you for writing this book. It offers a really evocative introduction to the history of black women in America, which are like a central force, the backbone of our country. And your book is structured with vignettes of black women throughout history who have been overlooked, but who have been incredibly influential. And each chapter kind of shows the strength of black women dating back even to before 1619. So we pulled out Isabel de Olvera. Mm. She was a free woman of African descent who lived in Mexico, And she embarks on an expedition to what is now New Mexico uh, as a servant in 1600. And as you call Olvera's story, you say that it is an example of the hidden or otherwise unacknowledged aspects of the history of this country. And this is like a complex Black woman, African descent, lives in Mexico, ends up in New Mexico with an indigenous community. So, I just want to ask you, which historical figures in all of this work just are you feeling like are with you on your path that you learned about as you were writing this book? And we'll start with you, Dinah.
2: So mine actually is Isabel Vero. She is someone that we spent a lot of time with. And I was just fascinated by her story and spent time trying to understand, like, what would the journey be like for someone before sixteen hundred. Or well, around the year 1600 was when she was given permission to travel. She was actually a free woman, though, um, and she says that she was neither bound by marriage or slavery, which I think is hilarious.
0: Yes. <laughs> oh, She was a feminist. Yes,
2: exactly. I'm neither bound by marriage nor slavery. So she saw a correlation between the two, maybe. Mm-hmm. Yeah. At any rate, um, she wanted to go and explore and see what New Spain would look like, which is now present-day New Mexico and Texas. And she went to court. She um, testified in front of the city mayor of Puerto Mexico, and she asked for a petition because she wanted to have a piece of paper to protect herself from being bothered because she thought people would be disturbed by her presence as a free woman of African descent. Mm. At the end of her statement, she says, you know, people will be bothered by me because I'm a mulatta. And she said, I need a piece of paper to, you know, show that she's free. And at the end, she says, I demand justice. Mm. So... We love that, that here at the beginning of African women of descent that we can identify who walked on American soil that was indigenous soil, obviously, right? Yeah. Who came and traversed this region at a time. This was before there was a large population of enslaved people here Mm. in what became the United States. So black women started this country demanding justice. And I think we're still doing that today. Callie.
3: There are so many. But one of the ones that I always marvel at, it actually happens much later in 1963, is Mary Lucille Hamilton. This is a black woman. She's arrested at a protest in Alabama and she's thrown in jail for five days and fined $50, right? Why, you ask? Because she refused to answer the judge. Until he addressed her as Miss Hamilton. Oh, my God. Okay. (laughs) Yes. Right. Don't call me Mary. We aren't friends. I'm Miss Hamilton to you. Okay? (laughs) Your honor. (laughs) I think about the brass ovaries that you have to have (laughs) to be in the segregated South. Damn. All white justice and jury telling (laughs) this white judge that he needs to refer to you as Miss Hamilton. Okay, she gets thrown in jail. But you know what? The NAACP took up her case. They fought it all the way to the Supreme Court and they ruled in her favor. Oh, my God. I love right (laughs) after a year. (laughs) They reversed the contempt judgment. So she is one of my favorites because a lot of times in our history, we have, you know, the women who, of course, deserve our praise too, who are well known. Right. Women like Rosa Parks, um, Shirley Chisholm. Right. You know. Angela yeah. Davis, Asajjikar, like these, you know, big name folks who've done incredible things and deserve those accolades, rightly so. But sometimes we forget about how, like, there's so many everyday Black women, right, poor working class, middle just everyday folks, who took a stand and were incredibly courageous in the face of, you know, brutal white supremacy. So, Miss Hamilton is one of my favorites.
1: <laughs> yeah, I was uh, you know what's going through my head <laughs> when you said that? I was thinking of, like, Janet Jackson, Nasty. It's like, Miss Jackson, right, if you're exactly.
4: nasty.
5: <laughs> Listen up. I'm right up to I just want some respect. So close the door if you want me to respond. Because privacy is my middle name. My last name is Control. No, my first name ain't, baby. It's Janet.
1: I was like, damn, what a story. But in the book, the two of you lay out seven themes that have affected black women through history. So here are all the seven themes. One, movement migration. Two, violence. Three, activism and resistance. The fourth theme is uh, labor and entrepreneurship. Five is criminalization. Six is art. And seven is sexuality. I want to talk about the activism and resistance part because you both detail how black women from the beginning of slavery they resisted, they fought for their rights. And you write in the book, and I'm quoting black women did not succumb easily to their captivity. Many fought back in the form of revolts and mutinies at sea. They used their knowledge of the ship's layout and crew behavior to inform other captives of the location of supplies and weapons and about the living conditions and daily habits of the crew. It's like the Avengers. Yeah, no, like, no, no, I mean, they're, they're
0: badasses. And the fact that you have given all of us a way to know these women as characters. Mm, yeah. So you detail the story of uh, the little George mutiny that happened in the summer of 1730. On the ship are 61 women and children out of 91 African captives. And because of their revolt, they ended up disembarking safely in Maine, which is kind of incredible. Yeah. So what can you say about black women's resilience? I mean, right now, I think so many of us are looking into our ancestral power yeah. mm-hmm. to understand how we can survive this. Yeah. So mm-hmm. talk about black women's resilience and hope surviving so much horror and what we're seeing today in terms of black women and their resilience and, frankly, their hope. So I love that you gave the example from the slave
2: ship, because I think I'm not big on sort of comparative suffering, right? But when you think about women that were on, they were African captive women on these ships. Some of them were being raped. There was a woman I write about that we write about in one of the chapters about how she's being raped as she's pregnant on the ship. And the other members of the crew are watching. You know, can you imagine that? Oh. And that mm. she survives enough that she makes it into records for us to be able to tell her story mm-hmm. is wow. pretty incredible. The fact yeah. that black women actually got off the ships and made it to the places that they were forcibly removed to. That in and of itself is resistance from my perspective. And and Callie and I were really trying to focus on not just heroism, but just like the sheer, utter, everyday experiences of black women and how they coped with their experiences. And I thought some of the slave ship experiences were pretty powerful. As we move into post-slavery and into like contemporary times, I think, you know, we close the book with black women activists, you know, like Patricia Okamuru, who climbed the Statue of Liberty. Maya Little, who painted blood or red paint on the statue at UNC Chapel Hill. Bree Newsom, who took the Confederate flag down from the, the State House in South Carolina. So you see black women fighting back at every period of our history here.
3: Yeah, I mean, I would totally echo that. I mean, one of the things that in going through this history and these stories, I mean, I don't, I don't kid you, there are definitely sometimes when I read about the ways that they resisted. And one part of me is just in awe of like the Mm -hmm. strength, the perseverance, Mm -hmm. right? All the different ways that they fought back um, to try to kind of cleave out some freedom and independence for themselves. There's also a part of me too that kind of was sorrowful at points, you know, that like just about at every turn, you Mm -hmm. have black women having so many areas of their life requiring that level of battle. Just over their own bodies, deciding whether they wanted to keep, you know, infants that some of them had been forced to have. Mm. We wrote about like infanticide, you know, at the turn of the century, I even write about a black woman who chose to live as a woman even after she was arrested and subjected to these invasive examinations by white doctors mm-hmm. because they determined quote, her sex to "quote unquote" mm-hmm. be male. Mm. Francis Thompson, even though she identified herself as double sex. This is in 1876, right? You know, wow. yeah. <laughs> being incarcerated and forced to labor alongside men on a chain gang having people come by and ask rude questions about her gender. And, you know, I mean, I quote her. She says, none of your damn business.
2: (laughs) Mm. I love (laughs) Right. Even
3: under these circumstances, right? Like, you have these incredible examples of women who they keep the fire in the belly, right? Like, Frances hasn't lost her fight, even on the chain gang, even forced to labor in these men's clothes. But... You know, the other part of that for me, which is kind of heavy, is that, you know, she survives that incarceration, but she she dies three months after her release. Oh, gosh. so it's also like, you know, so there are points where it's like, you know, the resistance is hardcore and it's real. But there are also points where it's like, you know, the cost of it are heavy, too. Yeah. And so I am kind of in awe about this, the fact that there are so many black women who fought and survived at all. And when I see the stuff that they went through and encountered, that kind of gives me some optimism for where we're at now that they've found ways to draw strength from each other. Yeah. And I think that's something that we can use now going forward. Mm-hmm. Black women had An incredible ability to organize collectively, Mm -hmm. whether as a voting block, whether they're putting together their own food co-ops in the projects, Mm
4: -hmm. whether
3: they are deciding we're not going to ride this bus for over a damn year (laughs) until we help break this yoke of segregation. So I think those are some lessons for us to take now. Mm. Like we can't we can't fight what's going on on our own. Right. This is not that type of battle. Like we got to organize. We got to draw strength from each other.
2: Oh, I love that. Yeah. Yeah. And we can't wait for someone else to to start the movement. That's what I think is
0: another theme is black women just jump in. Right. Mm-hmm. We don't wait. And I guess what you're saying is that the thing is, is that black women have been leading the movement in ways big and small throughout the entirety of history. Right. Yes. Um, I'm going to quote your book. You say, quote, black women occupy a complex paradoxical relationship to America. We are at once marginalized and ostracized, yet our very being has been exploited to help create and maintain white supremacy. Wow. And as a result, black women have created unique sisterhood spaces, right? Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. So when we're living this moment, right, where racism, gender discrimination, you know, we're seeing black women. And women of color are standing in solidarity with each other. So we see the members of the squad. Mm-hmm. It's Ilan Omar, Ayana Presley, Rashida Tlaib, mm-hmm. and Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez. Mm-hmm. And they're all working together um, and making this relationship between black and brown and women power. Mm-hmm. So I'm just wondering how, I mean, and I kind of ask myself this question every day. How do we live in this paradoxical relationship to this country? And black women you know, have been teaching us how they live in this space of resistance, survival, and also a space of safety, creativity. um, And that gives that gives life. How do you see this very particular, as you call it, complex and paradoxical relationship to this country? I think it's always been here. This has
2: been black women's experience from day one, as we saw with Isabel de Oliveira's story, right? It doesn't change in any time period. And I think that's what really surprised us when we had conversations about what to include in the book Mm -hmm. is that there's always this complex relationship. There's there's moments of joy, right? Yeah. The Harlem Renaissance is a great period, you know, um, even in the 1930s, 1940s, you know, we looked at entertainers and other performers, athletes, They had successes. The first black woman to win a medal was Alice Coachman, you know, a gold medal in the high jump. So there's success along the same time when there's deep pain and sorrow. Um, The family experiences of someone like Emmett Till's mother, Mamie Till Bradley. Mm. Mm -hmm. Here's a grieving mother that decides to open the casket of her son Mm. so that the world can see what happened to him when he's sent from Chicago to Mississippi for the summer. Mm. And, you know, we now know later, right, that the woman lied that he didn't do what she's like, you know, there's a, there's debate about whether he winked or whistled. Right. Yeah. But that she lied and she, she said that, you know, that she made the story up. This is like years later. So we have to sit with that. How do we swallow that today?
1: Yeah. Yeah. And that's an act of power. Like you said, I never really think about them until Till moment where the mom's like, Oh yeah, we're opening up that casket. Like that mm-hmm. was a, that was an act of resistance that, Probably no one knew at the time, at least in the culture of America, right?
2: Exactly. Mm-hmm. And it was in the midst of deep mourning and sorrow that she took a political stand. She probably couldn't even fathom the outcome of what that would do, but she needed, as a mother, for people to see what they did to her son. So then she pinned pictures of what he looked like before he was lynched and then thrown in the river. She put the pictures in the casket, and you can today now go to the National Museum of African American History and Culture and see the casket with those same photos pinned inside.
3: Yeah, Mamie Mamie Till Bradley is just another one of those figures that is awesome to me and mind-blowing because she— is, again, one of these examples of a black woman who, you know, she wasn't like an activist with the capital A or anything like that. I mean, she's confronted with this horrific tragedy and just immediately starts to, I mean, like, even for her to reclaim his body, she had to mobilize local politicians because the folks in Mississippi were trying to just cover it up and bury it right then and there before she even got there. Yeah. So it's like you know, the fight started immediately after this horrible news. This is one of the things that I love about her. That starts with Isabel, and I think just goes right on throughout. Which is that black women continually press for d- justice. Like they always put a demand out there for justice. You know, Mamie Till Bradley, she telegraphed the president, okay, <laughs> asking yeah. for for intervention and in justice. I mean. Think about what it takes in this moment of of horrendous grief and sorrow to still summon up that kind of of power and will to just, you know, fight and demand justice, even in going to the trial, the death threats that they endured, Mm -hmm. all of it and knowing full well what the outcome was going to be, even at the start of it, because Southern justice was so corrupt.
0: Hi, it's Maria Hinojosa, host of Latino USA. We all love great stories and great stories are what we pride ourselves in delivering to you every week. Latino USA presents a mix of reporting on culture and politics, diverse voices and coverage of current and emerging issues featuring stories from the heart, stories that will make you think and maybe even inspire you. Listen to Latino USA on your favorite podcast
1: app from PRX. For me, my head's now going, this was Black Lives Matter before Black Lives Matter. Like Exactly. That was just another example. And just making the connections is incredible. But also the power of Black women voters, right, and their civic engagement uh, in this country. Mm. And essentially the, the impact that Black women left behind in our history, how it sets the framework like we said, for Black women today. So, for example, the mid-1840s Sojourner Truth, who was freed when New York outlawed slavery in 1827, she became an abolitionist and women's rights activist. Ida B. Wells, who is a hero of Maria Rosa, another pillar in the history of Black women who are not afraid to lead campaigns against lynchings, and she helped co-found the NAACP. Then we went to Mississippi in mid-February. We had these live shows. We were reporting on the 2020 election. Mm -hmm. And we talked about the historic role, right, of Black women. And I'll never forget that moment, Maria, right, Mm -hmm. when we mentioned Fannie Lou Hamer, who literally put her body on the line for the right to vote. Mm -hmm. And it was a really intimate crowd. Like, we were down in Jackson. Mm -hmm. And I just felt the entire audience just, in a moment, just, like, lift themselves up. And and the love Mm -hmm. that just came out of that moment when we just mentioned her name. Mm You know, Fannie Lou, she was threatened. She was physically harassed by white supremacists. She mm-hmm. endured a brutal attack by Mississippi police. But she continued to fight, right, for black voters. She even ran. She didn't win. She ran for her office herself. So there's this legacy in the South, right, of this power of black women who have resisted, who have fought. So, Callie, specifically, and I felt it. I mean, Maria and I both felt it there and and the legacy of that and also in immigrant communities, how that's connected Talk to me about the power in the South, how it influences movements and civil rights around the country. How does that resilience translate into electoral power?
3: Wow. Okay, this is a great question. No softballs from you between Maria and Julio. I can't keep up. All right, uh, <laughs> You're a professor. Dude, I'm making a professor say that's a deep question. I'm good. <laughs> no, it's been awesome. So here's what I'll say about this. I'm gonna draw in the north and the south because there's a way in which I think sometimes the north gets this like um, mm, total. Pass. They get a um, pass. <laughs> Yeah, they completely get a pass yeah. on the kind of racism right, <laughs> yeah. that that reigned supreme. So you know, remember that there was slavery in both of these places. It's just that it ended a little bit earlier in the North, but the racism endured through both. But in any event, you had black women throughout, really early on, wanting to get the right to vote, organizing when it finally happens with the um, passage of the Nineteenth Amendment and it's ratified in nineteen twenty. Black women in the South, immediate, they have been suffragists all along in the North and the South, but they start to mobilize. They organize voter drive, yeah. and they lament the fact that their sisters in the South are going to be denied the right to vote the same way that black men have been disenfranchised through white terrorism, poll taxes, and all the rest. But they still, they organize clubs. And one of my favorite things that they did, and I'm talking about it now because I feel like we might need to revisit this, in an effort to sort of confront voter suppression, They organized with this uh, Massachusetts representative, George Tinkham, and they actually canvass the South. They get testimony from people about all the ways that they're being denied the right to vote men and women. And they collect the testimony because he puts forward a bill that tries to change congressional reapportionment, not based on the population, but based on the number of votes cast. Hmm. And I thought it was this brilliant way to start to challenge voter suppression. Yeah. Now, unfortunately, the bill doesn't pass, and then, of course, you know Congress adds insult to injury by actually increasing the South's representation. <laughs> uh, but I think that their political activism, their organized—they knew immediately the importance of the right to vote. They try to leverage the fact that they're a powerful voting bloc. When they realize that it's not being acknowledged, they, you know, they shift parties also. Mm.
0: Mm -hmm. Which actually leads us really interestingly into our next issue, because in Chapter 10, we're talking about electoral power and how like another shift. Right. Mm -hmm. I mean, 1960s, 70s, ultra radical. I'm so happy that I was alive on the south side of Chicago to experience the beauty and the horror, right? Because there was a lot of attacks against black activists, Black Panthers. And I was around to know about Shirley Chisholm. She decides to run for presidency in the Democratic Party in 1972. And she's out there. She's like this very how would I say, proper black woman in the sense of how (laughs) she looked, how she dressed, her little curly hair. (laughs) But she was also talking like serious electoral politics and she was taking power. She was not quiet. And even though she had this strong campaign, she had endorsements from the Black Panther Party. In your book, you write about the fact that a lot of black women and men failed to support her because you say, quote, many proponents of black power, both male and female hmm. believed that the 1970s marked a moment when African American women needed to sit down and let black men lead. So this was an internal conversation, and I'm wondering, when you think about this now, you know, was this part of why why we still haven't had a, a woman president, a black woman president, and what's happening with the 2020 election cycle?
2: When you look at the the right to vote and the historical trajectory, and you see that the right to vote was first given to all men before it was even given to women, right? We're in that year of suffrage. We're in the anniversary of the women's right to vote right now. Um, And so both black and white and Latina and Native women and Asian women um, all had to sit back while all men were voting up until 1919, 1920, right? So when you look at what happened with Shirley Chisholm and why are we where we are, I've been surprised that people don't know that she was the first woman to run for office. Um, a lot of people today think Hillary Rodham Clinton. Oh, you
0: mean the first woman to run for the presidency?
2: For the presidency. I'm shocked at how many people did not realize it or had never heard of Shirley well, Chisholm. as a
1: woman, not as a black. Wow. As a black right. a Democratic yeah. Party.
2: huh. Yeah. So a lot of people don't recognize that. At any rate, um, there's always been tension. Um, and we try to we try to cover this a little bit throughout the book within the internal black community. Um, But what I like about her, if you listen to her speech.
5: I stand before you today as a candidate for the Democratic nomination for the presidency of the United States of America. (laughs) I am not the candidate of black America although I am black and proud. I am not the candidate of the women's movement of this country, although I am a woman, and I'm equally proud of that. I am not the candidate of any political bosses or fat cats or special interests.
2: You know, so she's like, take away my gender, take away my race. Not that she's not um someone who cares about those things she's saying i'm not speaking for everyone but i'm speaking for specific issues and these are the issues that are dear to me and so that might have been some problems i don't know callie if you would if you think otherwise but i think her campaign was a campaign about specific issues that were that she cared about
3: you know i mean i think she definitely does run on this platform that's about trying to push past barriers and also to excite and politicize other folks maybe didn't see themselves as a part of the political process. I mean, I think the issue of sexism and patriarchy runs deep, right, in this country, certainly. And we know that communities of color are not, you know, sort of excluded from that, right? And so there is this issue around sort of sexism and patriarchy, right, and machismo and these kinds of things that impact a lot of of these communities also and shapes how people think about it and part of it is because so many folks have had their humanity so sort of demoralized i mean you think about the ways that that black masculinity and black femininity have been sort of caricatured and stereotyped you know there's a part of me that's sympathetic to the the notion That black men wanted to sort of redefine and push back against these ideas of them as deficient or lazy or Mm. brutish or somehow not leaders, right? There's a part of me that wants to be sympathetic to that. The same way that I understand why there are some sisters who, you know, chafe at the idea of constantly being described as like strong, right? Like there's a lot of Mm -hmm. debates now about, you know, the strong black woman rhetoric and the ways in which that could be really harmful, too, because it also expects people to uphold some of these sort of impossible standards. So I do think that some of that tension is an undercurrent in kind of the community and the politics and the way that people think about political leadership. But I also think we've reached a point now where everybody has had enough, and so the desperation is such mm-hmm. <laughs> that it might actually open up some new possibilities at this point, like you know it might it might be just enough to get us past some of the the traditional kinds of of race gender and and you know sexuality sorts of biases that had limited kind of who we can imagine as a leader
1: so both of you guys mentioned this theme. One of the other themes was labor and entrepreneurship in the book. And you write about how black women were innovators, right? And business women, no matter the adversity that they face. And one part of the book, and I'm quoting, they raise their own crops to sell during enslavement or hawked goods like pepper popped stew, as they did near Philadelphia's Congo Square in the colonial era. After emancipation, black women entrepreneurs opened beauty shops that catered to African-American women's unique skin and hair care needs. Black women could get their hair fried, dyed and laid to the side in the parlors. I love that line. (laughs) But they could also laugh loud and trade scandalous gossip, all while cultivating grassroots activism. So obviously today we see the entrepreneurial spirit still alive and it's well within black women. For example, according to a 2018 State of Women-Owned Business Report that was commissioned by American Express, of all people, (laughs) the number of firms owned by black women increased by 164% from 2007 to 2018.
2: Wow. So,
1: Dinah, how do you see black women entrepreneurship as a medium of survival and even resistance in some cases? Black
2: women had to find a way to make a way out of no ways. You've heard that phrase before, right? Mm-hmm. And they they did so from the skills that they had and often coming out of slavery and moving into generations, the first few generations after slavery, they didn't want to do labor that was associated to work on the plantation and many black women did not want to work in other people's homes. And that was often a job that was forced to them. Right. And those that took on entrepreneurial sort of skills and ideologies went and opened up businesses. They owned taverns. They actually helped with the banking industry. There's a lot of scholarship that has come out. Jeanette Garrett Scott uh, out of the University of Mississippi has written a book about black women and how they um, were very important in helping with savings and creating their own banks you, know, you don't see that kind of history put in general history books where we talk about black women being innovators. Tiffany Gill, a scholar at Rutgers University, writes on um, black women in beauty shops how in those spaces where they were getting their hair done, um they were also using that as a space of political activism and they were they were planning and and having meetings and getting ready for
0: rallies registering people to vote in the space where they were getting their hair done kelly i'm going to ask you a more complicated question oh of course and this actually <laughs> also came up through your book which is that ironically one way in which african americans tried to save and protect families was by holding slaves themselves And that in Charleston City, South Carolina, between 1820 and 1864, the majority of black people who held other black people in slavery were women. Help us to understand they were doing this to protect Mm. black families, but they also understood, well, this is perhaps one way in which I can accumulate capital in order to be, you know, to play in this kind of economic reality. Right.
3: Okay. So in a lot of instances, you know, you have black people buying family members. So a lot of times some of those purchases are them trying to buy other people out of enslavement. Um, And in some cases, in acquiring capital and using folks, other enslaved people as property, they were still able to hold other enslaved families together. Mm -hmm. I mean, one of the cruel sort of ironies about enslavement, enslaved families' fates were often tied up with the slave owners. So if a slave owner, you know, accumulates debt or gets sick or anything happens to them, that jeopardized any families that were together on the plantation or wherever they were. So there are ways in which sometimes that ownership is sort of participating in that trade you know, in this sort of twisted way, kind of helped to sort of preserve some of those bonds. And now I'm going to pass it over to you, Dinah.
2: <laughs> <Baton>. <laughs> so we actually struggled with how to write this because mm. it comes up in class when in teaching. And I always feel like we just wanted to have some better context so that we can. Put this out there because it, it was a pattern that happened, right? right? That there were black slaveholders. So what does that mean? So let me put it in context. Let's let's try to find a way so that people aren't spewing out misinformation about this history. Mm-hmm. We felt like, okay, let's address it face on. Let's talk about all the complexities that are involving in that. So you have black women that are, some of them are married, quote unquote, to their enslavers. So to white men. So here's the thing. The reason why I said, quote unquote, Sometimes there's a 20 or 30 year age gap. So do you see what I'm saying? Yeah. Are they really married? Is this a forced mm-hmm. relationship? So some of these women accumulated property through their husbands, quote unquote, and I'm using that very loosely, tried to take the property and create a life for themselves. They have children that they raised. Some of them, some not all women wanted to be mothers, right? Yeah. Not all women wanted to raise the product of rape. Mm-hmm. So some of those um, women would try to purchase, as, as Callie was saying, would try to purchase their children and then live in a free space. So right. the status of enslaved people was defined by the mother. So if their mothers were, were enslaved, then they were enslaved. But free black women had other opportunities for them. And one of those avenues was to marry I don't even like using the word marriage. I'm sorry. I'm really struggling with that. (laughs) Even just saying it is awkward um, because they didn't have the kind of rights as, quote unquote, married women. And then did they even have the consensual right to deny this relationship? We don't know that. We don't know. So it's hard for us to, to have that conversation. But if you were free... In most states, like Virginia, for one example, you had to leave the state once you were given your freedom within six months. So imagine that if the rest of your family is enslaved. So some of these women tried to make a a living to then purchase their relatives and act like they were their slaveholders. And then once they had everybody, then they would move to the north. Damn. Or to Canada, because the Northwest not always yeah. this holy mm-hmm. land where everybody lived happily, right? right? So that's part of what happens here. And we really struggled with that section and tried to flesh it out um, in a way that hopefully readers will understand the complexities of blacks owning blacks and not just walk away and say that.
1: We're going to move on to our final segment which is called La Última y Nos Vamos, or essentially Last Call or the last one before you go.
0: So the question that we have, I think because we're all looking for hope um, based in reality <laughs> and humanity, and we realize that all of us are making history, having an impact in history, and we thank the both of you so much for writing this book and yeah. capturing this history. But today, is there a Black woman who for you is kind of embodying The history of resistance and of optimism and hope and organizational ground game survival that you look at today and that you say, today I'm inspired by this black woman. Who would it be? And we'll start with you, Callie. So
3: I have a a small request. Can I do a cheat? Because there are two. (laughs) Yeah.
1: Yes. (laughs) Go for it. (laughs) <laughs> okay, so
3: so there are two. So the first one is I'm, I'm really kind of a fan of Stacey Abrams.
2: Oh, uh-huh, ah. you took mine. Mm-hmm, <laughs> that was you Dinah. Yes. I'm interested in sort of
3: see Dinah's like, why'd you take that from me? <laughs> I mean, yeah. listen, you know, I mean, this sister fought the good fight in Georgia. Voter suppression robbed her of the governorship. You know, she doesn't take it laying down. She's formed this organization to try to fight back. I'm interested to see what kind of role she plays going farther into this 2020 election, if she ends up being anyone's running mate or if she's going to stay really challenging voter suppression.
5: We know that vote by mail is a critical part of how voting has to occur in 2020 to ensure that as many people as possible can vote safely from home. But it's not only about those who can vote safely from home, as many people as who can vote through vote by mail, that reduces the number of people who have to be in line. But there are populations that have no choice. There are folks who are disabled, who have been displaced by COVID, who are homeless, who have language barriers. And if you're African-American or Latino, you're twice as likely to have your absentee ballot rejected. If you're young, you're five times as likely to have that ballot rejected. And so there are some people who have no choice but to show up in person. And we want vote by mail to reduce the number of people who have to be in line on Election Day. That keeps everyone safe. And that means our democracy can work.
3: So that's kind of like my first one. The other one is this sister who is an everyday black woman, Angela Whitehead, who in 2019 cursed out the white police officers who illegally entered her home.
5: You must be crazy coming up in here. Talking
1: about you heard something. You heard me
5: talking. I talk loud and I'm aggressive. And guess what? You did not knock on my door. There's no weapons here. There's nothing going on here. And you are violating my rights, sweetheart. Right. Now, tell me that I'm fucking wrong. You can't, because well, I'm not wrong. You're violating my rights. You it's do not come setup, up. Shut up. A... shut up! Shut your mouth! You do not come up in my house. You do not. You do not come in my home without my permission. Period. When I get called... I right don't night. care what you got. Hey, I don't care. I don't care what you got. Because guess care. what? If I hadn't just came in the house from smoking a cigarette, this door <laughs> would have been closed and your ass would have had to knock. You do not fucking come in my house without my permission. With your white ass, and I'm black, and I'm scared of you. Like, I don't know my rights. Stop playing. You got the wrong black girl on the right day, baby. What do you want? Guess what you're about to walk out of my home, though,
0: because
5: I know my rights. Yeah, Bye. No. Bye. This is her. Bye. Don't ever do that again. Thank you.
3: She cussed them out and threw them out. And she's also <laughs> my hero because we Love all it. know how some of those confrontations with police
2: can go. Hmm. Mm. All right, thank you. Okay, Dinah. I'm gonna go with Bree Newsom, even though she's in the book. I'm a big fan of Brie Newsom. Who knew what would happen to her when she climbed that flagpole, you know, and took the Confederate flag down? Yeah. I can't imagine how many death threats she probably received. You know, she put her life on the line.
5: The retaliation piece was much scarier to me than arrest. You know, I was even thinking about the possibility of being up on the flagpole and you never know who might walk by. Um quite frankly, you know, you could get shot. Uh, you just really don't know, um, especially when you're up there and harnessed to the pole. I mean, they're, you're in a highly vulnerable position. Um, and so I, I really did have to, you know— Prey on it quite a bit, but but part of why it was so important to me to do that was because to me that flag also represents just uh, fear. You know, it, it's racial intimidation. It's fear. The, these are the same things that they would fly when people were were marching for integration. They would be flying that flag because it, it's a it's a sign of of intimidation, which is undergirded by violence.
2: But that wasn't just an isolated incident. She's always been an activist. Um, and she's always been fighting for justice. So if you look at her larger historical trajectory, I keep saying that. But, you know, these women don't just show up as a, a one-time game. A lot of these women in this book have been doing and participating in activist movements in different ways throughout their lives. And in multiple organizations, not just for one cause. So I would say Brie Newsom and um, Kara Walker, the artist. Yes. If you've seen any of her work. It's amazing. She pushes back against slavery, white supremacy. She's the one that did the Sugar Baby um, giant life size Mm. statue of a black woman in New York at the Domino Sugar Factory. Yep. She also has a, a piece in London about fountains that's pretty incredible.
4: The well overfloweth its banks and changes course away, away from this island fort, towards a new world, taking with her gods and dreams and men and women. We cross the Atlantic in many ways, we swim or we sink. This is a piece about oceans and seas, traversed fatally. The Fons Americanus is an allegory of the black Atlantic, and really all global waters, which disastrously connect Africa to America, Europe, and economic prosperity. I wondered how to return the gift of having come to be through the mechanics of finance, exploitation, murder, rape, death, ecological destruction, co-optation, coercion, love, seafaring feats, bravery, slavery, loss, injustice, excess, cruelty, tenacity, submission, and progress, conceived in the U.S. to live in this time and place with this opportunity, this ability.
2: If you look at the silhouettes and the images, um, I think just her artwork alone is political. And it makes you think, it makes you uncomfortable. And I love that. She really just forces us to to have conversations that people aren't uncomfortable with.
0: All right. Well, thank you so much for giving us those names of women today and throughout history of capturing their stories. Dinah Ramey Berry and Callie Nicole Gross, historians and authors of Black Women's History of the United States. Thank you both so much for joining Julio and me on this episode of In the Thick. Thank you for having us. Thanks so much for having us. I'm Maria Inojosa, And I'm Julio Ricardo Varela. Thanks to Carla Arroyo for producing this episode. And remember, dear listener, go to Apple Podcasts to rate and review us. Also, you can listen to In the Thick on all major podcast platforms, check us out on the web at thick.org. follow us on Twitter and on Instagram at In The Thick Show and like us on El Facebook In The Thick is produced by Noor Saudi Oscar Fernandez and our New York Women's Foundation Ignite fellow Daniela Teo Garzón our editorial director is Fernanda Santos our audio engineering team is Stephanie Lebeau Julia Caruso Gabriela Baez and JJ Kurubin. our marketing manager is Luis Luna thanks to Sofia Sanchez for recording me in our Harlem studio the music you her is courtesy of Nacional Kep and CZK Records. We'll see you on our next episode, dear listener. Thank you for being with us. And remember, no te vayas. Peace and love, y'all.
5: The opinions expressed by the guests and contributors in this podcast are their own and do not necessarily reflect the views of Futuro Media or its employees
0: from P-